I thought that a practice manager was stop people from fighting, call up somebody when the washing machine breaks, and be mean to vendors when they walk in the door. <laughs> I thought that was my job description. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I am joined by none other than Bash Hallow. Bash is one of the most entertaining speakers on the veterinary circuit. Firstly, because he is tear-inducingly funny when he hits his flow, but he's also highly eloquent and not afraid to say things that might cause offense to others. In short, he possesses a raw authenticity that has endeared him to many in his native North America and beyond. Most notably, he addressed the Veterinary Management Association at the House of Lords in London. Now based in New York, Bash started out life as a veterinary technician and pursued his business interest to founding both the New Jersey Veterinary Hospital Managers Association, the Big Apple Veterinary Management Group in New York City, and served in as advisor for the Mercer County Community College's Veterinary Assistant Program, the first of its kind in the area. Bash's day-to-day work involves helping veterinary hospitals understand how to build stronger teams and responsibly and ethically grow their businesses. He's a member of the American Animal Hospital Association, the Veterinary Hospital Managers Association, and the Pennsylvania Veterinary Medical Association, which recognized him with the President's Award in 2013 for his educational work in that state. He's also on the editorial board of First Line Veterinary Management Magazine and the Fetch DVM 360 Veterinary Conferences. Now, just before we jump into the episode, let me drop a quick word from our show sponsor, which is Vetex Thrive. If you are struggling in practice or you know a vet who is, then please check this out. Vetex Thrive is a community that will help you find purpose and direction, plus give you the skills to succeed and be happy. As a member, you'll learn and master the non-clinical skills required for success. You'll also get access to the best mentors on the planet and you'll be part of a supportive global network of vets. So if you think that sort of support and training would help you succeed, then please head to drdavenickel.com forward slash FedEx, that's in the show notes, and click on FedEx Thrive to learn more. Now back to Bash. I can honestly say that no guest has made me laugh so much at topics I might otherwise find quite dark. He was genuine, forthright, vulnerable, and honest during this interview, which made him such an amazing guest. So, let me speak no more, and instead leave you to savor, learn, or maybe just enjoy this, my conversation with the wonderful Bash Hallow. So I'm sitting here in the Kansas City Convention Center. I'm joined by the wonderful... Bash Hallow, one of the funniest speakers on the circuit. Okay, hold on, I'm going to have a sip of coffee. <laughs> and great timing, great timing of coffee drinking. That's disgusting, mm. Bash. What is that? I was just uh, giving the viewers, I mean the listeners out there, a sense of a having a cup of coffee. Of the rich texture. sense of Folgers coffee. Auditory texture. Yes. We, we are... We are in the speaker ready room uh, we're at the end of the conference yeah. Bash you've just come off of a spin of how many hours of speaking six six hours so you've still got voice not including the time I went over <laughs> that was the scheduled time six hours so you are uh, you you will in that case be on that post speaking complete adrenaline buzz dopamine infused high that goes with getting done Oh no! Not my, I don't know. I'm not high, man. I'm kind of like oh, You're I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm more like we take me to the bar, kind of a. Um, oh, we can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can do that. Um, 
And for those of you who've not been in Kansas City, Kansas City is a, a place of barbecue and jazz and music um, and humidity as it as it goes. Yeah, it is raining for the first time in a while here. They've had a very they're not they're not an extreme drought. They're it's like the step above that. Whatever that can't remember the word for it. It was like yeah, they told me the other day they were like we're beyond extreme. It has another word, extravagant. No, I don't know. <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> like, yeah, it just it went from extreme to fabulous. Drought. <laughs> yes, that's what that's what they're in. Um, uh, so, Bash, um, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you. Wonderful to have you here. Um, normally, normally, so we're going to we're going to get in some things. Bash, if you guys don't know Bash, um, he's a very uh, fascinating, interesting, colourful character who I uh, have gotten to know a little bit over the years um, through our shared speaking experiences. Um, and I think my first memory of you, Bash, actually, I'm going to share that first of all, is of you coming. I think we'd briefly been introduced or uh, I saw, like I, I was doing a session, I forget which event it was, but I was, I was being me and generally being a bit leery. And I saw these two people come in the back of the room and I knew it was two other speakers. And so one of them comes in and is this sort of foppy haircut, looks a bit like Tom Cruise, kind of cool looking, sits down the back. And then I start doing my thing and I forget everybody's there. And, and basically I start being a bit potty mouth and rude in the sorts of ways I am. And I just remember looking up and you just creasing yourself laughing, thinking this was hilarious. And like, who is this idiot that they've let speak at CBC? And it was a wonderful memory that I have. So um, it's, it's been great getting to know you. Um, what we normally do is just set a bit of background and, and get like uh, like get to know you a little bit, and then we'll get into some of the things that you work on. Um, but I'm curious, you know, the videos you put on Facebook, um, you live now. You're, you have, a, you have a, a, a New York accent with the sounds of it, but you live in quite a rural place. Well, I still live. I still live in New York. I still I moved to New York um, in uh, 19. 89 yeah. I think yeah. yeah and um I found after a couple of movings around business I I found this apartment that was rent stabilized yeah and uh um uh, so I uh, you know uh, uh, finding as I'm sure you must know living in London you know find, finding housing in a city like that is extremely difficult yeah so I and I didn't have any money any money and so I come out of the subway and I'm walking up the street and there's this liquor store and the owner of the liquor store is putting a sign up in the window that says room for rent and I'm like and I walk in and I'm like what, what's the room can I see it so he walks me up this two floor walk up in this junky building and he opens the door and on the floor is this fat fat, fat Afro-American man in his underwear, sitting next to a half-drunk bottle of vodka, I'm not making this up, watching a television that's on the floor, and then beyond him is this window through which is streaming the most beautiful sunlight I have seen since I've moved to New York City, and I turn to the guy and I go, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened to that poor man, I don't know what, what, whatever, I guess they were throwing him out, I don't know what happened with him, but... Um, so I, yeah, and I, I got that apartment and everybody made fun of me like, why are you taking this hovel? Because it's a tiny dinky little dorm room of an apartment, uh, you know, like an, an efficiency apartment, right? With a kitchen and a, a small bath. But I tell you, it's been um, 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 a godsend because it's affordable for me. It's a, a, a rent stabilized apartment, which means they can only raise the rent incrementally, you know so much every year and I've had it all this time and it's allowed me to maintain a residence in New York and then after I made a little more money, I bought the farm, not, you know, 
um, I mean, not metaphorically. I mean, I really bought a farm. <laughs> you actually bought a farm. Yeah, I bought a farm, and I just am. That's where my soul is. Yeah. And so I, I'm I'm delighted by the videos that I see from your farm. Um, I'm asking you about your your chickens, and more recently, you seem to be really be getting into bees. Yeah, and the honeycomb bees. you had on mm-hmm. there. So tell us a little bit about life in the country, and like, like what made you move to the country? So your your heart and soul's there. Tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, you know. So tell us about so, the honey. Yeah. So um, so. Uh, I'm a big worry wart and um, I have over the all through my life I have you know uh, 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 gone to gardening and gone to manual labor as a way to work off excess anxiety so I had this piece of property when I bought the when I so I was looking everywhere when I was in New York for a little piece of green now mind you I live in a freaking dorm room in New York City I've got to have a little space here right but I don't have any money and I'm looking upstate and I'm looking out on Long Island I'm looking in Jersey there's nothing I can afford and so finally I decided to take a trip out to Pennsylvania and I'm driving out there and I passed this old dilapidated sign for sale sign it must have been up there for 10 years in front of this old Pennsylvania bank barn old barn it was built around the turn of the century so I marked in my mind that that's where it was maybe I took a picture of the thing I can't remember and I call up the real estate agent and I go up there it's a beautiful beautiful June day and the green of the country is like electric it's just hitting, it's just yeah. hitting me in the face and I'm walking through the various sections of the farm I go through a wetlands they have a wetlands and there's like freaking little baby snapper frog I mean snapper turtles in there and then I pass this stream and then I go up into this hemlock forest with these big rock things and then I come down into this overgrown field it's like every possible habitat you know so yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, a yeah. big wildlife nut and I find this broken shovel in the property and I think to myself if I can dig a decent scoop full of dirt here I'm buying this damn place and sure enough I dug it effortlessly went in the soil I made a bid for the place I got it for a song, 20 acres for a song. And about four years later, they started the fracking of it all in oh, New York. Yeah, yeah. So I was offered $5,000 an acre to lease my 20 acre thing. And I signed on the dotted line. I signed it actually the highest thing. And I was able to um, that, use that money as the down payment for the home and able to develop it. So anyway, that was a long road to a little house to, to explain to you the stuff that I do there. But the thing I guess I'm most happy about is that as an animal, lover I really do believe that animals think and feel and I'm a meat eater and I've had a really difficult time wrapping my head around the fact that I know these animals think and feel and yet I eat them so I decided that whatever I was going to eat I was going to try to raise it and slaughter it because if I didn't have the balls to slaughter it by gum I was going to give it up so I go and I get me a patch of chickens and they accidentally so I don't know if you know this but do you know that chickens come in the mail do you know that I did not know that okay yeah so you can go on T-shirt okay, on there. well, so so <laughs> chicks when they're born, right before they're born, they absorb a bit of yolk yep. from the egg, and they're able to sustain themselves. Some would say up to five days. I think the probably yeah. the cutoff day is about three days, yep. where they don't have to have water or um, food. And so at that point, as soon as they hatch, they can pack them in a box and provided there's enough in there to keep them all warm, they actually will mail them to you. And so you get this box of cheaping things in the mail and you take them and stick them <laughs> under the weird. heat lamp and the next thing you know you got chicks yep. well they they inspect them hopefully they are, are looking at their vents to determine whether they're boys or girls but as you can imagine that's a little fraught with error sometimes uh, I think it's even hard to look at a rabbit and know that yeah yeah, yeah, right? yeah yeah so they accidentally slipped the rooster in the mix the next thing you know <laughs> i got little chicks more little chicks which was really cool if you've ever seen that happen it's beautiful to watch but i ended up having all these roosters and the one thing that you 
quickly learn about roosters is that they do two things, both which begin with F. One is fight, and I'll leave you to figure out what the other F one is. Rhymes with duck. Yes. And so um, they really, in the wild, I'm sure that these roosters would be, would be culled from the flock, right? They would be protecting the flock, but not in my farm. Where they're free-range, by the way, but they're not eaten by whatever it is. So um, they just start ravaging the hen. I don't know if you've ever seen a ch- have you ever seen a rooster mate with a hen? I have not. Well, it's not for the faint of heart because they will chase this hen down. And like men, I always I'm, I'm threatened to write this book. It's called Everything I Need to Know About People I Learned from Chickens. Because what the oh, males you have do, to write that. Yes, right. The males, what the males will do is they'll pretend to pick something up in the yard, like mmm, mmm, mmm. This looks, mmm. This is delicious. This hey, is a nice dirt. La- yeah. Hey, lady chicken, you should come over here. <laughs> and that stupid chicken will come running over there. And as soon as she does, he grabs her by the back of the head and he pushes. And she's like, ah, oh, God. <laughs> She pushes her head down and he gets up on her back with both of his feet and digging in there and they he pushes his cloaca. But in the meantime, every other man is like, hey, wait, I was interested in that girl. So they all run over and they're all grabbing her. I mean, I'm making light of it, but it's absolutely the worst thing. And she's screaming like, oh, God, because you can imagine you've got this big rooster with their. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe you can't imagine it, but there's this big rooster on your back digging his feet into your thing. They call it rooster tracks. You see the hens and they're stripped bare yeah. of their feathers. It's called, and they're, they're raw. They're raw. So there's only so much of that you can tolerate before you're like, you know what? You're going in a pot, mister. And so I have to tell you this story because the, your listeners will love this being. So I'd never butchered a chicken before. So I decide I'm going to butcher me a chicken, but I've got to do it humanely. So after 50 YouTube videos, I've figured out how I'm going to do it. It's called a killing cone. And so you want to know what a killing cone is. It looks like an e-collar that's kind of wrapped a little tighter than, you know, a little more conish than an e-collar, a little tighter. Right, right. Uh, 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 Angle's a little more acute on the collar. So you uh, take the killing uh, cone and you stick it up on the thing and then you invert the chicken in it and the head comes out at the bottom of the cone. And then supposedly you're supposed to cut the jugular on either side of the chicken's neck and it will bleed out humanely. It won't be flopping around and doing whatever. Okay, so after 50 videos, I'm ready to do it. I got the killing cone up. I got the pot of hot water. So I don't know if you know this, but once you dunk a chicken in about 160 degree water, you know, once they're thoroughly moist, those feathers will come out like they just peel right off the chicken. So it's great. So I had that all set up. I had the kitchen and the butcher knife and the whole thing set up. I'm ready to roll, right? So... I get the chicken, and the chicken is remarkably accepting of its fate. You grab that chicken, and after initial tussle, it once you kind of are carrying them to their d- you know, doom place of doom, they just just sort of resign to like, okay, I guess this is the day I'm going to meet my maker. They're not flapping around; they just kind of hang upside down. So I go and I stick this chicken. I'm trying to stick the chicken. Why isn't the chicken fitting in the? Freaking, oh my God, the chicken's too big for the cone. So I have to kind of try to suck that chicken's head down through the bottom of the thing. And you can feel that chicken be like, oh my God, this chicken's cone is too tight. I can't take the cone. So I'm like, don't worry, chicken. I'm going to, this is a humane process. And the goddamn dog is jumping up. A dog, get down, get down. For God's sakes, I hadn't thought that part out. So I take the knife and I'm your, like. I can't believe you're making a vegan. You laugh so much about murdering chicken. I'm telling you. So I take, I, I'm, so how do you find the jugular on a chicken? Okay, well, this is my jugular here. I guess a, a jugular. Okay, let me just take a little cut. I'm going to cut. Nothing. Nothing. Okay, I must have. <laughs> All right, let me try. It's supposed to be cut. Cut. Jesus Christ, how, how, I'm cut. Where the, 
God damn it. And so, and now I try the other side. And the chicken is like, oh my God, this is. <laughs> so I try cutting the other side. And the goddamn chicken will not bleed. I don't know where this jugular is, but so far I've practically gone completely around 360 degrees around this chicken's neck, and it has no. Ch- on either side and now I've got an upside j- chick- upside down chicken with one dribble of blood <laughs> going over its eye and it's looking at me like blink 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 and the goddamn dog get down dog so now I'm like oh for Christ's sakes now what am I going to do so I got to walk all the way over to the barn and find the hatchet where's the hatchet I don't know there's that paintbrush oh, no, never mind about the paintbrush stay on stay on stay on task Bash. where is the hatchet so I finally find the hatchet and I go over and I now I have to try to pull that chickens out of the killing cone but it's more like a, it's like pulling a cork out of a wine bottle. Like, I pulled that chicken out. And then I put it down. Get back, dog. Get back. Get down. So I have to stick the chicken's neck. Now, mind you, it's already half mangled. But then I take this sharp hatchet. It's only been used maybe twice. This is an exceedingly sharp hatchet. And with with what I think, I mean, I've never done this before, but I feel like I've got to do it pretty vigorously, right? And I go, whap, and nothing happens. I basically, like, hammer the chick instead of cut i've basically now hammered the chicken's neck so i decided to give it another whack and i've hammered the chicken's neck again and i'm like oh for christ get back dog and i give it one more whack and finally i think i don't know maybe three quarters i mean not since queen mary has there been a more botched <laughs> beheading ever so for Christ's sake, so finally that i did that and I, I don't know you know the rest of it i will tell you after it was all said and done the um the be- the bird was absolutely beautiful once i got it all done it's not it's a hard process you know you, the feathers come out pretty the, the big parts of the feathers come out right nice but you got all those little pin feathers and you got to get rid of that and then you got to eviscerate them and that's not easy you would think you would just cut it and reach in there and no it's not i mean you got to really claw it you feel your nails like digging like clawing that crap out of there and uh, by the time it was all done, I had a beautiful bird, but it was tasted. It, I could have I could have chewed through a rock faster than I could have chewed through that bird. It was the toughest thing ever, but it made the most beautiful broth ever. And that was the story. And so since then, I've been butchering, you know, kind of regularly. It's kind of a pain because I don't really have the time to do it. But I have learned that it is okay for me to eat chickens because it's... It's the only way that that population that I have could be sustained. If I didn't call those males from that flock, there is absolute... I mean, there have been periods of time when I haven't called them. And if you came over to my property and saw the condition of those hens after they'd been raped by all those boy birds, you would have me convicted of like animal cruelty (laughs) because it's that bad. So that's my story about that. Uh, that is, I, I thought you've ever made a vegan laugh so hard, but a, <laughs> a, a vegan vet laugh so hard about a, 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 an animal, an animal molestation. Yeah. Um, tell me about your name. You got the best name. Like I have speaker envy for your name. Where's, oh, where's where's the where's the bash so, come from? So Bashor yeah. uh, is Syrian. My yeah. father was Syrian. Okay, and it's his name. Ah, and so I think that that the Syrians pronounce it Bashir, or you know, that's what. I was but right, but but um, I, th- you know, they came over through Mexico. That's how they emigrated to America, and then they came up to wherever they, you know, up through is that a uh, tunnel under the yeah, under <laughs> right the wall under the wall. Or? They came up through that, and then they ended up in a coal mining town okay. in Pennsylvania, um, where they tried to. Uh, uh, make do they were exceedingly poor um, but um, 
you know, so I, the name was just bastardized. You know, there's a lot of things that um, I learned. I don't speak Arabic, but there are a lot of Arabic words that if, you know, now if I say them to my Arabic friends, they basically laugh at me because my pronunciation is so bad. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were poor people and probably illiterate and didn't write. And so whatever Arabic was passed down by the time it finally got to me was really pretty bastardized. But I did inherit that, you know, name Bashor, and that's actually how it's written on my father's uh, emigration papers as B-A-S-H-O-R-E. And it must have been how they phonetically thought they should spell such a thing, because they didn't probably know how to spell it. And did, is this, because the surname does not sound Syrian. So where's this? Well, it used to be Khalu. I was, that's what I was going to ask and I asked and they probably said as much they probably said you know what's your name they were like Halu and they were like H-A-L-O-W Halo you know they they probably right. didn't know it and we actually have a whole branch of the Halu family in um, in Mexico my my side of the family um, came from uh, I think probably Serbia Slovak migrated with war um, on one half of my family and changed from um, Pankovic to Pinky but didn't want the H because of, you know, the risk of being from overseas, moving to the UK, potentially, you know, racism and a change like that. I can imagine that's sort of a helpful thing to have. You know, you don't want to sound like you don't fit in. Or is it different in America? Well, there was a, nothing. There was, well, mig- no, there was nothing about my parents that, wa- that you know, my parents, my, my parents wanted to be Arabic. Nothing. Yeah. They wanted to completely assimilate into American culture. Yeah. And, and my father, who was, he was born in Mexico, but moved at a very, like when he was two or three, yeah. up to um, Pennsylvania. And there was nothing. They had no affinity for their um, cultural background. I presume because they would get crap for it right yeah and so the yeah. thing was assimilate into the culture and be american so my parents on the exterior were american pie except for their appearance were all american man all american you have uh, an in, i think you a very interesting journey by the sounds of things what drew what, what drew you toward or propelled you into veterinary medicine or this sector Tell, tell us a bit about your career. So and your I, I always tell this story. So I was a I was a I moved to New York to be a writer, which meant that I was a bartender in New York, and I was bartending in New York. And this waiter hands me um, this little tab of paper. This is before Craigslist and Indeed and anything like that's how you applied for a job, right? You had a poster of it and you had those little tabs, and he gave me that little tab tear off thing with a number to call about employment out of vet hospital and it turned out this new vet hospital was three doors down from the place that, that I told you that Afro-American, that Afro-American yeah. lived and so I would literally roll out of bed roll into my scrubs maybe I was already sleeping in those scrubs open up the door walk downstairs walk maybe 15 feet open the door to that and that was my commute to work and I, when, I, when I applied for the job, I had all the qualifications. Like the things that I said in the interview were like, yeah, I used to own a dog. And uh, you know, like, uh, oh, yeah, I mean, we took the dog to the vet. I mean, I was I absolutely no. What was the role? What was the job you applied for? Uh, my first job there was to install what I was told were shoreline cages. What the hell are these? <laughs> and for some reason, we have to put styrofoam in between them. What the hell's that about? I don't know why I have to do that. They are a nightmare and, uh, to put together. Yeah, yeah, I've, right. I've I've no clue. Working with perfect practice. strangers in a brand new building. Had no idea about it. And um, so, the thing I love about the the story that I always tell about this is that. Um, I, the owner was not prepared. I, as I, I, how can any owner really be prepared for all of the management 
side of owning a veterinary practice. So imagine you have all of these people that you've employed. Maybe there were maybe five of us total. I can't remember how many people, six people maybe that just helped him start out this practice. We had one chart. It was his cousin. One chart in the folder thing. This is before electronic records. And, um, and he had all this debt because he just opened up this practice. <clears throat> and he's sweating bullets like, will I, will I fly in yep. this space, right? <laughs> so cut to, there's only us, you know, there's only so much you can clean a brand new freaking practice, for God's sakes, right. until the whole thing devolves into, so anyway, so last night I was out, but you know, like, we would just chit chat. <laughs> yeah. And he would come flying out and he'd have a complete conniption fit and blow up. <laughs> we'd all scatter like roaches. And then, you know, we'd go back. It was a never cycling thing. So, um, so cut two, we kind of grew, kind of grew, we kind of grew. And he would have these bouts of flipping out. And um, like any good vet professional, I'd been raised in a good, solid, alcoholic family. And I was well acquainted with people flipping out for no good reason. And I'm yeah. going to fix them. I'm going to help them. Yeah, yeah. So I was really um, empathetic. Uh, um, sympathetic empathetic to his um what he was going through and i really tried to bridge the gap and i and i sincerely wanted to bridge the gap and i think he recognized that so uh, my mom got very this is after years had passed now maybe i don't know two or three years had passed and my mom um got very sick and i decided that i was going to go back home and i was going to hospice her i hope to hospice her and right before i made that decision he offered me uh, the chance to manage the joint because uh, you know we had, we had some difficulty in that area and no i knew nothing about management and i was so pleased to be offered that job because i loved working there yeah and um I, I couldn't take it because I had to go home and I took care of my mom and my mom lasted about a year and it was a really um, an amazing experience to do that for her certainly a very horrific one but also one that was really rich in so many areas and I finished that I finished you know I, I, I took care of her and then about two weeks after that was done the damn phone rang and it was him and that turned out that the manager that he had hired didn't work out and would I come back so I had an opportunity to return basically to the life that I left right where I left it off and I became a practice manager and God bless that man he supported me because I knew nothing about practice management I thought that a practice manager was stop people from fighting call up somebody when the washing machine breaks and be mean to vendors when they walk in the door <laughs> I thought that was my job description and That's not it. no believe it or not it's I gotta write different lectures <laughs> yeah and so um, and so I, I don't know he put, put up with all of my many mistakes God bless him. He supported my education. And uh, yeah, and I made a difference there and went on to bigger and better things. I have to tell you, I've been so looking forward to having you on the show uh, because all of your Facebook things and <laughs> like, so everyone puts out Facebook things, but without any shadow of a doubt, bashes Facebook things are, I, I've, I've just, I laugh my like butt off every time I watch one of your things. You know, when I do those um, um, Facebook things, I just, it just hits me. I'm like, I'm gonna record this and typically I can do it in one shot and they uh, really, uh, they get a big response. You know, that Hillary Clinton one that I did about the, you know, choosing between her and Donald Trump and you know, the that particular game, analogy that you used in that yeah. has stuck with me and I have, I have used that and always referenced you in, I'm not going to repeat it now in this, this, this podcast. Yeah, I mean, you can, you're the guy. So, but it was, it was a visual that will live with me 
till I die and, so, yeah. and and I can't unsee what I saw in my mind so I, I thank you for that Bash yeah and you know how rueful it is for me to go back you know how Facebook like posts like this is what you posted a year ago or two years ago yeah. and how rueful it is for me to look at that video because I had no idea that did you, things would unfold the way that it did right and do, do you do you feel that might have influenced the electoral <laughs> outcome more than I hope Putin not. did no I will tell you um, I was traveling um, so you know, I have a lot. I, I I live in New York City. I spend some a lot of time in. I spend a lot of time on the coast, right? And I keep telling those people in those urban centers that you know you're kind of like a bubble of ideology and politics. That's not what's really going on there out in the hinterlands, right? So um, uh, I say, we have this discussion a lot. And so then I have a home in northeastern Pennsylvania, and it's about uh, three hours northwest of New York City. And once you pass the Poconos, it gets into some very beautiful but really rural country. And once you're up there, you know, you, I started seeing signs like lock her up, you know, like or bumper stickers, you know, pretty, pretty in-your-face bumper stickers. And um, I thought to myself, where are the Hillary supporters here? You know, not, none, of the, none of that sign right and then I think I got on a plane and then I flew to Madison Wisconsin or uh, can't remember somewhere in Wisconsin I flew and I land there and then I have to drive up to Sheboygan or Green Bay or wherever and the entire way all I see are Trump sign that's all I see is Trump sign yeah. and then I, I kind of do a complete circle of that entire state either driving speaking whatever and then I get on another plane and I have to fly to Tampa and work and the same thing happens in Tampa this was about two weeks before the election and I was like uh-oh. You're worried. I have I have a feeling this is not going to go the way everyone thinks it's going to go. Yeah. And uh, it's surprising. Well, we had the same thing in the UK with our moment of yes. insanity. People feel disempowered, don't they? And, and don't, like, this was an opportunity to sock it to the institution, to the establishment. And it seems like that's a lot of Trump's thing came, you know, drain the swamp. And similarly with, with the, the UK, people felt like, you know, distant, uh, you know, Technocrats or I, you know, uh, unelected European officials were starting to interfere on local life, and and just it was a backlash as much as anything. But I don't think people were voting for something as much as they didn't want the status quo. I agree, and you know, I have to tell you that um, you know, there's now everything is so polarized, right? You you either are yeah. for something or you're not for something, and the other camp are idiots or they're whatever, and there's just no room for bridging the gap when you're using that kind of communication or when you're closed down to listening. Yeah. yeah. Right? So you, I think it's really important because certainly I love the people that I live with up in my neck of the woods, as rural as they may be, and as different as, I mean, we are very different. The people, my neighbors and I, you know, <laughs> we, the only reason that we know and hang out together is because we happen to buy property adjacent to one another. Right. And we like one another and we get along, but we think very differently. And, um, but certainly anybody that would call those people monsters or inhumane um, they would be completely wrong. Those right. people are very different, have very different views from me politically, but um, that doesn't take anything away from their humanity. Right. You could still meet them, have a beer. That's right. All of those things. That's right. right. And I would say that there are plenty of things in this country that we can agree upon. Everybody can agree upon, right? The needs of children, the yeah. value of great education, right. the, the value of Western democracy. I think that we can all, most of us agree that there's wonderful things that happen with that. All right, so I think a nice little segue in, from from that being, you know, a general thing coming into, I'm going to pull that into our industry. I knew you were going to do that. 
And it, the particular thing you said there was it's you're either for something or against it. Now, there are a number of Facebook groups popping up. And I like with your background, I've done a lot of work in social, uh, not social working, but with social media and business development through social media. Really interested in your opinion on the impact that Facebook is having for business. Is it is it a good thing? There are clearly opportunities in there, but is it overall a good thing um, or, or from a business point of view versus the uh, the mental impact that it has on us as individuals? Like, what's it doing behaviorally to us? Is, is the benefit of having it as a business tool outweighing perhaps the negatives? Because people are, people are anxious, like we're stuck in our phones, we're, con- like we're, we're addicted to this dopamine hit of, of being in social. So is this a tool that is really benefiting us? And talking about, like maybe like using the word cyberbullying, I've just come from sitting on a cyberbullying panel, where you're seeing that sort of behavior that you see, whether it's a, a Hillary, uh, Donald dispute or it's uh, you know I think this particular you know it's a position A versus position B and then a fight ensues what is it about the dynamic of Facebook that, that lends itself to that sort of thinking and is this a tool that's benefiting us as a profession well I think in terms of a tool for private practices to demonstrate their value I want to say it's almost unprecedented I am really positive and optimistic about its value moving forward for practices. I think that um, it's too bad that uh, the people in private practice don't have more time to explore how it can be leveraged to right. their best advantage, right? Because all this technology requires a learning curve and then you have to relearn it in four months or six months because Facebook has Changes. changed the rules again, We right? all chase the, so, chase the sugar yeah, cube around so, the maze so, another bit. So that's a problem, but you know, in terms of um, you know, we're always trying to demonstrate our value. Yeah. And, and I regularly get to go into practices and I see the value of what these people do, of who they are unfolding minute by minute. And all of that can be translated virtually, you know, uh, it, it, with ease, right? Onto Facebook. You yeah. really have an opportunity to show them what happens behind the scenes, which is so often where so much value takes place for the client. It, um, great customer service isn't necessarily demonstrated in the bowing and scraping that we might ask people to do up front, right? right. It's involved in just the attention to detail, just the love that people have in their hearts and these people that we hire. And what a great venue to demonstrate that um, through social media. So I think that for private practice, I actually think that social media has an opportunity to really make it um, um, very, very competitive. Um, You know, private practice and smaller businesses can just be more nimble to responding to it, to coming up with great ways to demonstrate their character on it, to, to, to communicate in the community. Are there any, and I know we, we, that's the first part of the question, oh, wait, but we'll, I we'll to, circle. Wait, 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 I, just <laughs> I feel like we're going to go down so many well, rabbit well, wait, holes. Yes, right, but I have to tell you this. So as individuals, I have to tell you this. So last night you asked me how this dinner went with this colleague. And this actually happened, we were talking with him about earlier about another industry profession, professional, and I, had, I hadn't seen this person for quite some time. And we're sitting down, and she is constantly referencing crap in her phone. So we have the four of us who are sitting down to a discussion, right? And we have to stop while she rifles through either pictures or she has to look something up on the phone. So the entire conversation comes to a pause while we have to <laughs> rifle through, I don't know, 35 pictures and you just, and you just want to say and which is what I finally did put your 
phone down, woman. I am not interested in rifling through your library, your external hard drive of photos and memories on your phone. I want to talk to you. Talk to you. Right. We can figure it out, woman. We can figure this out. So cut to, and she was great. She was great about it. And I did it, you know, with the... With love. With love, and, right? Yeah. But yeah. Oh, cut to last night. So I'm having uh, dinner with this person, and, and uh, this is a new person. I've never met this individual. And upon meeting... I felt like it was a little solicitous. Like I felt like there wasn't a genuine interest. It just seemed a little superficial. It was yeah. probably the way I was reading it, right? Yeah. So then cut to dinner and I'm st- and, and I really feel like that she is um, that it's not so much a conversation, but it's kind of an interview. Yeah. And I don't know, I just it just made me a little squirmy. I don't know why. Were you interviewing her? Or was she no, I felt you? like she was interviewing me. Yeah. So so cut to, at one point she's rooting in her purse, but I can't quite see what she's rooting for because she has me going on on my interview and she's obscured by the table. And she, she is looking down at this thing and I'm convinced while she's, in, while she's kind of paying attention to this thing that she's looking at. And she's um, uh, asking me these questions and I finally stopped her. I was like, I can't focus anymore. If you don't put your damn phone away. And she goes, it's not a phone, I'm taking notes. I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. And I, I was just, I wasn't, I wasn't kind with her. I was like, look, you got to put your phone away because it can't talk to you if you're going to be looking at your phone. She was like, I'm taking notes. And I was you're, like, you ruined the whole, you screwed up the whole just, relationship. She was just like, was a, a, a bash fan yes, girl and was having yes. a moment and you just squashed her. <laughs> um, so, uh, c- circling just back uh, to the... Uh, the anxiety induction in Facebook. So the, the business, I've got a couple of follow-on questions. So I'm going to come back to how, like, ha, what, what red threads or what principles. I think you said something really, um, really important there, which is the, the, the pr- platform changes the focus and, and how you're going to use that to engage customers frequently and irritatingly frequently and, and there seems to be always like certainly ads always seem to change and yeah. move from it's pages to groups and so there's a challenge in there but are there any principles for and maybe not just focusing on Facebook but in terms of use social media and storytelling um, is there a principle in there or, or principles in there that you've observed that are useful to practices practice owners in, in engaging with their pet owners yeah so when we were talking about this yesterday when we were talking about writing stories and you know testing what like you know you write something and you think oh my god this is going to blow up the web and nobody reads it um or you know you write these other things and it blows up the web right so i will tell you um so i always uh, i I was uh, really had an aha moment about i don't know maybe six months ago i get on this plane and this woman kind of you know she she scoots herself in front of me and she plops herself down next to the seat um, uh, uh, next to me and she takes this cellophane thingy maboob out that she clearly bought at the gift store and she, it has like this peel sticker thing and she sticks it against the back of the chair it's a velcro device whatever and then she takes her cell phone and she sticks it in the velcro device so this is a device that will is meant to stick to the back of airline chairs so that you can put your cell phone up there so then she proceeds to stick her earphones in there and she hooks up and she rifles through a couple of baby pictures and then she 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 sits back and she begins to watch a movie on her cell phone and I thought my god what a long road to this house of I just want to entertain myself with a movie and then I look around and the entire plane is looking at movies and I think to myself what is it about our affinity for a story like yeah. why are we all so wrapped up in movies but I will tell you that the more you know so I always ask this question um, um, when we talk about the value of 
of client education. And I always ask the staff, more client education equals more compliance, true or false? And they invariably had this knee-jerk reaction of, it's true. And I was like, really? Is that, that's really your experience. You went into the room and you said, you know, according to the latest AHA statistics, this vaccine, you really did that? That really <laughs> improved the compliance? And they think about it and invariably there'll be somebody who's really doing some thoughtfulness and they'll say, no, I tell them a story. Right. And so stories, I mean, that's a long road for me to tell you the, the value yeah. of stories, but yeah. I honestly believe that there is a thing that in, I just, I'm sorry, I'm so passionate about this idea, but I regularly used to think that the only people that could sell stuff and practices were the extroverted salesmen, right? Yeah. But that's not true. Introverted people can sell just as well as extroverts. Right. I also used to think that I had to teach you what to say yeah. so that we could be better salesmen. Yeah. And that's also been a dead end road yeah. for me, right? Yeah. That only, you can give them some, you can, you can improve performance slightly, but what really counts is people believe in the value of it yeah. and they tell their story. They tell the story of how they've come to believe in yes. that product or service and that's what wins people over so the great thing about social media is that it's an opportunity to tell stories we were talking about this yesterday I typically have low success rate with it with a clinical discussion about something so there's a flu outbreak and we talk yeah. about what canine flu is yeah. or a distemper thing yeah. and to me it, it, my experience is that that sort of gets a temp uh, you know, uh, that, that's a very modest interest for my audience. You tell a story about how Doc Gittleman got Lyme disease and yeah. it blows up the web. Absolutely. You know, so yeah. personal stories really matter for practices and that's what they should be telling. We've, we've, we've evolved in this way from when, you know, tribal elders were the earliest form of the internet or, you know, just information storage in one form or another was in the form of storytelling and passing it from generation to generation like before books even existed, then libraries, now the internet. So we're, we're hardwired to hear a story, aren't we? I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. If I think about what I do in the exam room that's different to other people, sure, there are elements that you have to go through, but it's always with the stories that you can tell of your, you know, it's, it's dust off your, you know, your warrior wings and tell the story of the time where you had these challenges, problems, or what this product fixed or the impact it had on, on patients, make it real. Yeah, and you know what else I think is important is I think that you don't have to come to you know your Facebook post with all the answers. Right. All you can do, all you have to do, really, is introduce the conversation. Yeah. Right. And I've also had a lot of luck saying, you know, well, this is what we think. What do you think about this? Like, yeah. we wrote this one post about it was a post for a practice in New York City, and it was how to train your cat to use the toilet. Yeah. Right. So we have all the products, and this is what we do. This is what we think that works. But what did you do? Did yeah. you ever try it? Yeah. And I think that's also really great. That's that's also something that really, uh, I think, bonds clients to practices or gives yeah. clients another opportunity to bond to the people they're in is to invite them into a conversation online. Yeah. Why do we, when we're getting in conversation online, you know, often we see conflict conversations online when... Um, is that true? You often see that? I'm not in, sure I in, often in see that. In Facebook groups. So I'm talking more about Facebook okay. groups here. And especially veterinary Facebook groups. There are many groups out there that seem to be... Their, their, their purpose looks to me to be about squeezing pus. So problems within the industry. And then people are going to, they're cutting a vein and bleeding in these groups. So they're posting something, something happens, and then they go into Facebook and they'll write about it. And then really it looks like they're seeking some form of validation of their position. So a bunch of people will give them that. And it, then it starts to look a lot like, you know, sometimes I'll see things and I'm like, 
that, that, that looks a lot like victim behavior to me. Like, are you, like there's, that's a very polarized, you're taking, you've, this, is ex, this experience has happened and rather than ask yourself why it happened, it's now I'm, I'm judging this outcome and I'm then labeling that and I'm telling myself a story and I'm feeling bad about this. I'm gonna post this and just vent. And there's a lot of venting in these groups. And then there's a bunch of other people experience the same thing. So now it's just this big group venting moment. And I, I am removing myself from Facebook groups because I go in there and they drive me crazy. Um, because I just want to get involved and, and rattle everyone's cage and go, but wait, like, it's, it's, it's victim speak that's in there. Like, this happened to me. This, was, this happened. Is it awful? Like, I, I'm, and it's all like everything has occurred to, to this person. I'm not thinking of any one person in particular here, but there's umpteen examples I see, and I'm not going to name any of the group names, but you know, there's certainly some that are more negative than others. And, and then, then, then there's also cyberbullying and things happening in these groups as well, which always baffles me in a profession where we know there, there are you know, people, I mean, I'm vulnerable people, let's say that, like people who, are, who seem less resilient or who are on the borderline of being compassion fatigued or you know they're people are in a vulnerable place within veterinary medicine and then but then you see the behaviors that people exhibit online and i wonder what it is about that medium i wonder your thoughts on what it is about the medium that allows people to behave in a way that it clearly looks like it goes against the values of what we as a profession seem to why we get into this profession care love compassion helping um What's your experience out there in Facebook? Like, are you seeing that? Um, what are your sort of thoughts on that as a tool to help and to support within the profession? So this is more looking at, rather than looking at clients, looking at within the space, internally in the industry. Well, I think that, I think it's a double-edged sword, right? So it, there's, it's, it, it, social media can be great to get ideas out there. And, you know, it all depends on how the, the, the mob is going to use right, that forum, right? Like. I think that's a great word, actually. Right? You know, how, how are they going to use that forum? So, I want to say something about venting. That, you know, we have this, we have this, uh, I think, misconception that venting is a good thing. Mm. And I actually think that, and I think there's proof, there's, there's proof to back me up on this, that venting is a bad thing. Because a lot of times, you're just affirming for yourself this fiction yeah. that life is shit or whatever, right? right, it's right. Just, and it's just bullshit. Yeah. So I actually don't think that venting is a good idea. I don't think that, you know, I just have to blow off some steam. Hear me vent about this for a while. Because right. I think that once you dwell in that negativity, it, and there's research to show this, yep. it's more difficult to emerge out of that. Right. It's better to try to stay focused on being present and perhaps seeing the more positive side. You could argue that you are brainwashing yourself on some level, but I would certainly argue you're certainly brainwashing yourself when you're saying the world is terrible. You know, so last night, for example, I was out with that person. She goes, you know me, I'm just, I'm just accident prone. Just all the accidents in the world happen to me. I find that really hard that to believe. That drives me crazy. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. like, I would, if I were you, you know, you haven't done anything so far that would lead me to believe that you are accident prone. You are polished, <laughs> gorgeous, lovely individual. You know, you haven't dropped anything on your blouse. You've, you've been perfect. You know, anvils <laughs> yeah, fell on her head. Right. So, style. yeah. So, and I would, so I regularly caution people about venting. I think if you feel if something bad has happened to you, you should probably reach out to a friend and and share that you might be feeling vulnerable or you might be feeling sad so right. that person can affirm yeah. that none of those things are true for you. That would be a wonderful way to redirect that venting behavior. But you know, um, there are social media, so 
you know, if you have a bug up your rear, right? Yeah. And you want to take that thought online, I think that crafted well, right? Diplomatically, um, you know, give it some thought. Um, I think that there's a lot of benefit to Hillary that. Trump. Yeah, well, like, maybe not that, that but but um, that you know, recently well I had a, recently I saw that there's Nicki Minaj and this uh, one rapper came out with this song that I just find so I couldn't handle it. It was so, and I don't want to be an old fogey, but it just seems glorifying the ghetto. It yeah. it sort of glorifies ghetto, it glorifies poverty, crime, you know. I, uh, sex under you know underage sex and I just don't see any value in those things and I don't see any glory in those people making that sound like it's really terrific so I wrote something about that um, how do we how do we then use so what do you have any pathways like because so, we all experience it right we're all buffeted around on the the waves of life and like nobody's got the perfect life um, uh, so stuff happens and some of us will go and vent and, and blow off. What ways, I think we all experience emotion and emotional reactions to things. And that's quite a normal part of the experience. You've, you've certainly touched on something I think is so valid and that's what story are we willing to tell ourselves. But what tools have you uh, used or how is, how is your experience, or you have, have you come from a place of, of learning as a journey as it were from, you know, from me, Personally, I know that I'm a lot less emotionally reactive to things now, and I, I have built the emotional buffer zone space to be able to think before I respond to things 95% of the time. Um, what, you know, how do you manage your emotional response? Because you post things, you're out there, you're public. Um, and when you, probably when you too do much that, so, you know I mean? Yeah, right. probably, and, I and should, you're, I you're, should probably have more of a filter. You are outspoken and you say things and I find them funny, but I'm sure other people would not find things because yeah. people will take offense at anything. How have you been able to master your um, responses? Because you, like, you, well, I'm no master, but I've gotten better probably along the same lines that you have. Right. Um, be, with with repose, with with giving myself some time to be reflective, and you know you want to bring it back to the profession. The um, so I have this this uh, one of the things that makes me nuts is I'll be talking to a, a vendor or a key opinion leader, and they'll say something like, you know, what's what's up with these vets bash? They just don't get it, you know. And that just makes me crazy, and I. I don't think that they've actually spent time really observing what's happening or they wouldn't make that kind of comment, right? right? So I think that these vets really do get it. I think that they're well aware that what they're probably doing in their practice isn't ideal. I think that they're probably well aware of the things that they should be doing, but yeah. they're not doing. But they're working full-time jobs. Right. They're overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. You know, in, in, and talk about a Chinese water torture, like in a practice where there's every five minutes there is a IT issue, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I work from home, right? I have IT issues every five minutes, and it's all I can do to, like, not fly off the handle. Yeah. You try, you know, sucking your business through, the, through an IT straw that is inconsistently pumping out <laughs> the stuff it's supposed to, right? Yeah. Every five minutes, there's a glitch in the system. It wears on your nerves. Yeah. And I think it's... Uh, so, you know, you asked me, um, what the thing that I think that veterinary professionals all would benefit from yeah. is, is carving out some time for them to step back from the bigger picture yeah. and 
and think about what's going down at their practice and what they can, what they might learn here at Fetch or any of the other uh, yeah. conferences, about what they can apply to the situation. They have to, they want a plug and play solution. Yeah. They want that. That's, it's not, that's not, that's halfway, but that's not the full way. It must be put into the context of their own goals and their own objectives. Right. And in order to figure that out, it requires repose. And so many people are reluctant to do that, right? Because I got to keep making money. Yeah. I got to do whatever. Yeah. But honestly, I don't know, you probably are aware of this too. We waste so much time in practice. Yeah. You literally could carve out a whole day for yourself, take it at home, take wherever and do yeah. that work and be thoughtful about it. And your life would be golden. Then you could focus all of your time on being a vet at the practice. It's, it's the constant distraction, yeah. isn't it? It's the, it's the urgent getting in the way of the important. That's yeah. the sense. And we, we, we are always saying, like, you know, we, we expect ourselves to multitask our way through the day, right? Yeah. But you're constantly stopping and starting, and you have, to ha you have that lag time of, 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 of kind of fading out of the project you were just in, rolling up into the new project you've been yeah. It's this constant trying to reset a, a project button and yeah. it, it's a time sucker. There's a mental residue that's left behind, isn't there, from yeah. the task that went before. The book, I've just finished the book, uh, Cal, I'm blanking on his surname, um, put it in the show notes, but it's Deep, deep Thinking, um, which, and it, it talks about a lot of this stuff, about how we are just so epically distracted in this day and age, and it's, you know, it's far, far worse now than it ever used to be with the internet, with mobile devices. Um, that it just distracts us from our purpose and a lot of the anxieties that we, we sense and we feel in our day-to-day -day life is just the, it's, it's in, in a sense, it's, it's almost intangible to put your finger on, but, but, but this author did exactly that and saying, it's the fact that you're not producing what you're capable of producing. You're, you're working on the trivial, yeah, not the deep. That's, that's going right. to change your world and your life. That's right. And it's so gratifying to work on the deep, right? But you have to give yourself some time to it because right. trying to work on a deep project yeah. in the middle of the maelstrom that's general practice business model or emergency medicine, it's just torture. Impossible. It's so how, how does a practice owner or a, or a doctor who has other projects, other things in mind, first of all, how do you discern the important from the urgent? And then how, how would you, Bash Hello, go about carving out time if you were in their shoes, if you... If you uh, had the practice. What would so, you do So, different? you know, when I go to their practices, I mean, I demand it, right? I mean, I, I'll go to practices and we'll have a team meeting and they refuse to turn off the phones. And I'm like, you're turning off those phones. Those phones are going off. Right. It's not, but what about our client? Well, I don't, I, I'm, you know, your clients will figure it out. <laughs> you, we'll, you can swear in this podcast. I mean, you know, we'll, we, we, we will figure that part out. Right. But we have got to, you know, you, you have a team meeting and then you're taking some of the team members out of the meeting and putting them at the desk essentially saying, this is important, but it's not that important. So why don't you just keep answering phones or right. doing whatever right. you are and not addressing the issue at hand? I have to tell you the story. So I go to this um, one practice and this um, veterinarian is just, she's beside herself with needing help. Yeah. And um, she really wins me over emotionally. I'm now bond, uh, bound to this practice. And we set about working with the team and the team is eager to improve because this practice is seeing appointments in 10 minute increments. Yeah. And they are chock-a-block full of appointments. And you know those kind of practices talk you know talk about um, compassion fatigue. Yeah. I mean, we're just that's a compassion just fatigue everything factory. Fatigue. You know, like we are yeah. just we are it's, we are just full fatigue. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's compassion. Yeah. Everyone's just knackered. Yeah, I mean it's just ridiculous, right? So 
Every time we have a meeting, she doesn't, the owner doesn't show up to the meeting because she's invariably involved in, you know, trying to complete her 79th spay on some rescue cat or whatever, right? right? So I call her aside enough times that I'm like, look, what you're telegraphing to this team is this isn't important, right? Yeah. My, my kookiness is more important than trying to pull this together. And the last straw was... I, I give her the right act. I was like, I'm coming, you know, this is, it's more than just money for me, right? My, yeah. my emotional satisfaction yeah. of this job is on the line. Right. I'm here to try to make an impact. If we were going to have a team meeting and I show up at 12, you all better be in your seats, ready to roll so that we can have this meeting. So yeah. I show up, like probably a quarter till, and sure enough, they're all there, especially her. She's front and center. And, and I couldn't believe it. And I thank them all for doing it. But as I thank them, I see the eyeballs all looking around the room like they're going to drop a landmine, you know, drop a bomb on me. And they do. And the bomb is that they're in their seats, but we only have 15 minutes to do the meeting because the practice owner has agreed to take a German shepherd that's 12 years old and is, is probably, you know, has some splenic issue probably, but is turned down from the emergency practice down the road because the owners have no money and it's not a client of the practice. So, you know, I'm sure the audience out there is like, oh, but you have to see that dog. <laughs> but yeah, well, what about all those team members there yeah. who have given years of their lives and their emotional well-being and their health? And we're trying to sit down for 30, you know what, minutes to try to fix it. And you can't even give your team that. Yeah. I, thought, I find that reprehensible. And I pulled her aside and... Fired her. We fired each other. We fired each other. <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> but how that I conversation went. I will tell you. I will tell you. I will tell you that we she we she we, she came to a, a lecture that I gave about a year later, and so we made up. And I work for her now again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she learned. Well, sometimes you know we have to just take like like each of us has our certain level of number of slaps we need from the universe before the message gets home. And sometimes people just need to get to that level of I mean, the sad thing is when people get to the level of busted and they keep going. And they don't get that help, um, you know, like that that burnout factory. That's that's every veterinary practice I've ever set foot in, um, to some degree or other. Just letting that urgent get in way of the important. What are the important things? Okay, so what what do Bash Hall think are the important things that practice owners should spend time on, if it's not the sick animal? Because I, I would class that because because they would all say, but well, that's important. It's our business. Yeah, it um, is. But I would class that as urgent, but not the big important stuff. If, if you want to have a happy team, happy culture, pleasant place where you are prepared to invest 20, 30, 40 years of your life and still love it. What so, do you have to work on? Well, um, so, you know, I, uh, I, I love this game. I, I practice with audiences. I ask them to imagine the last time they had a really great day at work. You know, so, and I'm at, I say, I want you to picture it, you know, you're, you punch out and you're walking to your car and you say to yourself, that was a really great day at work My because goodness. blank, yeah. right? And they have to fill in the blank. So it's, it's, first of all, it's surprising how few people are like, I had a great day at work. Like yeah. most of them have to be incredibly thoughtful about when was the last time I had a really great day at work, which is sad, yeah. right? But eventually, a few people will tell stories. And the themes of those stories are always these themes, always. Well, what do you think they are? What do you think the themes are, I had a really great day at work are? I would have said that the, uh, the team worked well together to solve a problem. Yes, that's definitely one of them. Um, I would have said a client, client was nice and appreciative and grateful for the work they did. 
my close. Yes, that's it. Yes. Um, and I'm, I'm coming to this from a place of uh, gratitude, joy, and problem solving, because that seems to be what makes people happy and also what veterinarians are on the planet to do, solve problems. Um, number three isn't, it's not going to be anything to do with making money. It's nev um, no one has ever said boo about money. <laughs> oh, no. Um, there's some, their boss said, thank you, you did a great job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I nail it? Yeah, that's totally it. So uh, the only thing that you didn't say, which when they, when they said it enough times, it really was galvanizing for me, is they said, I got all my work done. And you think like, <laughs> that, God, that's, that's, that's such a low bar, right? Like, how pathetic is that? You yeah. can't, but, you know, imagine the constant emotional drain yeah. of a practice manager or a practice owner where there's a stack of crap on their desk that never, they never get to the bottom of it. Yeah. But certainly the sense that, you know, I did work and, and people appreciated it. You yeah. know, like the clients, the clients looked at you and they thought, wow, man, you are exceptional. You know, or your teammates yeah. made you feel that way or yeah. your boss made you feel that way yeah. right and also what was so surprising is that you mentioned it teamwork yeah. right I was working in association with this these people people will always say this they'll say things like we just I don't know we just got through it. we had a blast yeah. we were laughing and working together and I think it's like left over from some evolutionary thing where we were hunting woolly mammoths together but it just feels good yeah. to work on a team so I invite practice owners to answer your question what do what can they work on I ask them to think about when their team members had a last good day at work, and I invite them to work as a group to make good, more great days at work. What can we change about our system? Because I think it's the system that's screwed up for the most part as to why they can't. Can I tell you one more story? No, you can tell as many as you like. And okay. then and I don't want us to lose, because this is going to be great. All your stories are great. So I'm, I'm also going to bookmark the system because that's, let's come back and talk about this system. Oh, yeah. we well, this will, this, this will highlight the system. So I go to this. So when I come to practices, as part of our work with the practices, we review all the financials, we look at all the key performance indicators, and then we go to the practice and we do a meeting with the team to sort of ease them into who I am and what I'm, I'm going to be. So instead of, I don't just show up like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch you work today, folks. I do a meeting with the team so they know who I am, they're, they're more familiar with me. Yeah. So then I spend the entire day trailing the clients through the practice. And I keep inviting people to do this and no one ever takes, well, there, not enough people take me up on it, it makes me nuts. If more practice owners or leaders would just spend an hour or two following clients through the cycle of service, they would uncover so many glitches to why we can't win more often. So cut to, I go to this practice and they have anywhere between 10 and 14 anesthetic procedures a day. It's a general practice, right? right. And how, they many, open, how many doctors in the practice? Uh, I know. I want to say there's probably a total of ten doctors okay. in this practice, right? So um, the um, they open up at six in the morning, six a.m., and they close at I don't know, God knows what, nine p.m. or whatever. Yep. And I tell them I'm, uh, they actually encourage me to come during the admit process. They want me to show yep. up early, so I show up at maybe like ten to five or ten to six. Yeah. For opening at six o'clock. Yeah. And the receptionist, who's a seasoned receptionist at this practice, has been alerted that I'm going to be there and she is going to show me that she is an, a rock star. She, right. So I show up at 10 till, she's got the coffee going, the computers are going, the lights are on, everything's ready to roll. Hi, Mr. Hallow, can I get you a cup of coffee? Yeah. And so six o'clock, the bewitching hour, the, the phones come on and we begin our day. And hi, this is Animal Hospital. Can I ask you to hold, please? Yes. So, and she's 
doing a great job. And she's really laying it on thick for me, right? <laughs> and so, but that bewitching hour of seven o'clock, they admit patients from seven to eight or seven to eight thirty. We're gonna have ten to fourteen anesthetic procedures rolling through that door. Yeah. And you can see that she is like, you know, stealing herself <laughs> against this hour, right? right, you know, right. She's like, you know, having a cigarette, <laughs> you know, break in the back, you know, you know, trying to sneak a little drink up pill pop. You know? I mean, she is, right? So they they start coming in, and she's got to go over the paperwork, you right. know, which I'm convinced we have to think of a different word for paperwork, right? Yeah. So and so I just have a couple of things to go over with you, Mrs. Simpson. This is a um, do not resuscitate order. Do not resuscitate orders sound very scary, but they're really kind of very important for us. Can I ask you to hold one second? Hi, this is so. So Animal Hospital, this is Eileen. Would you mind holding for just a moment? Thank you very much. I have a call on line two, call on line two. Anyway, do not resuscitate orders. I'll be right with you, ma'am. And so she's going, as they start stacking up, and she's got to go through like six pages of crap here. She's got to go through the do not resuscitate. Pre-anesthetic bloods. Pre-anesthetic bloods are pretty important for a pet because they guard against all kinds of, and she's going on and on. And she's actually going to get through this stack of people until that dog over in the corner decides to take a crap. <laughs> So she has, you can see, you can see the wheels in her mind going like, okay, bottle of Rocal and paper towels are over there. I'm going to go pick up the turd, <laughs> keep the do not resuscitate. So she's walking up for and she actually does pick up the turd, psh, 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 spritzes the floor with the Rocal, cleans it up, turd in hand, not of any break, sits the turd and the bottle of Rocal on the floor because it's not, she's going on, do not resuscitate orders, very important, da 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 da, right? And she's still going to get through it until we got a dog fight over there on the left side of the back. And now the whole room is filled with dog noises and sounds. And I swear to God, I'm not making this up. This is what she's going. She's doing what she's going. It's called a do not resuscitate order. It's a she's screaming. And the woman in the back, this woman in the back is like, what the hell is going on here? And for the first time, I'm so ashamed to admit that for the first time I recognized that I was one of the managers that has asked this person to do this job, which is impossible to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. And all and my answer to her and every other person that's ever bitched about it is, I know, but that's the job. We gotta multitask. I know. Work harder. I mean, this woman couldn't have worked harder. There's no way. She was doing everything in her power to do it. She's and so it's a really sauce. interesting. So when I talk about the system, you know, nobody so so the team members come up to me, you know. And they're like always very circumspect about so, you know, well, what do you think we should change? I was like, you know what I think you should change? What? I think you should stand where I stood for one morning and ask yourself the same question. Well, we don't want to do that. That's not what we're paying you for. What do you think? I told you what I think you should do. You should stand where I stand and watch. Now, we want to know what you, you think. All right, you want to know what I think? You have two people over there that are dedicated to the phones. You can't figure out some way to get this paperwork done prior to the admit process. You can't No, that's never going to work. You know, completely shut down. That's not the way we do it, right? Yeah. In veterinary medicine, the tech goes and starts the appointment beforehand or yeah. whatever, which is a bunch of, you know, people need to poke at that because it doesn't always yeah. work. No. And it's so refreshing, by the way, I can't shut up here, but it's so refreshing when you go to practices who, who have poked at that thing and have succeeded. You know, I went to this one practice and they see appointments. I told you about the other one that sees it in 10 minute increments. Well, I went to another practice and they see appointments in 10 minute increments and it was fabulous. It was fabulous. And the doctor and the tech and the, uh, the and the assistant all went in the 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 client care representative loaded the client in the room 
<clears throat> the doctor, tech, and assistant all go in together. The technician handles all the computer crap. The assistant is holding the patient, and the veterinarian was 1,000% focused, two eyes on two eyes, hearing, listening, and speaking to a client and examining the patient. And yes, it was only 10 minutes, but it was 10 minutes of excellent quality time. Yeah. And you go to other practices that are like, they're, they're measuring they're measuring quality in, well, we do longer appointments, so we have better quality. Yeah. And I would argue, not necessarily. Absolutely. Is your back to the, is your back to the client while you're going over some stupid checklist on the computer? Because yeah. I would argue that's not great client service. 100% agree. Yeah. The, 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 the variety of experience in the exam room, uh, you know, most of it is very poor standard. I would not even class it as good quality in the exam room. Most of what I've seen is amateurish communication. It, no, no, not intentionally amateurish. Amateurish, amateurish, amateurish. Something wrong with my teeth. Yeah, it's not intentionally that. Ironically, amateuristly delivering a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it is. It's awful, and the impact is profound on animal healthcare. Like practices don't need more clients, do they? They need better experiences in the exam room and they will double, triple the amount of business that they're doing simply by focusing on that. Yeah, the answer is probably less work, not more work. It's probably, you know, let's, let's not make it so complicated. Right. Let's get back to right. what people really want. I tell, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners out there will um, have a horror story about their own their own personal doctor, right? Invariably, when I ask the audience, like, what's your experience with your own doctor? Yeah. For the most part, there's a handful that love their, their personal physician. Yeah. But for the most part, our human medicine has been reduced to this impersonal, you're just another, you know, just another person on a, a long assembly line of patients yeah. that they have to see. It's so impersonal. It's really, I, I find it just so um, dehumanizing, right? Yeah. And um, we, I hope we don't get to that point where we're just churning through the patients and people. Um, you can spend five minutes, 10 minutes with somebody and provided you genuinely are interested in them and they're reading that, that's meaningful. Connection is huge. Yeah. I, I mean, it's one of our fundamental human needs is to feel connection and love. Yeah. And I, I agree with you, like the human experience is awful. Um, in the UK, you've recently been in the UK and speaking at the House of Lords, is yeah, that right? Yeah. In there, that's very cool. Um, you over in the UK, our corporatization rate is probably hitting around about forty percent. Not yeah. far off of that now. Predicting in the next, uh, you know, not so many years, maybe to top out about sixty, seventy percent. Um, and over here, what are you guys at about 10% in the US now? Yeah. And that's accelerating. 40% referral, I would say, and 10% yeah, right. general. Right. So uh, is, is that, because, you know, uh, and I, don't, I don't want to name company names specifically, but, you know, and I've never, I haven't worked, I've worked in corporates uh, and for and with corporates in the UK and, and with, in Australia. Um, over here, not so much. Um, but certainly one of the things you hear is that it's a very, you know, standard. I'm all for systems. I love systematization. My own practice is very systematized. But it's a very production-oriented, uh, you know, when, when the patient stops being the focus and the checklist, you know, and I'm for checklists as well, but without that personal skill, is, is that a strength of boutique independent medicine, like the, the doctor's, in a general practice that is independently owned, is that something that is and should be the preserve there? 
or is that something? Is that something we're losing through corporatization? Do you have a sense of whether that sort of structure, that structural change that's happening within the industry, is having an impact on the? You know, we talk a lot about the the pet owner bond, but clearly the the vet owner bond is a hugely important part of the equation as well. What impact is corporatization having on the vet owner bond at the moment? Um, well, I believe that it's forcing us to reevaluate what we do and to step up our game, and I think that that's a great thing. Yep. I think that um, both private practices and corporate practices are at high risk of missing the forest for the trees, right? Yep. Trying to get clients to be so compliant, trying to keep the standard of care so high that they miss connecting with clients and patients. Right. But I would argue that all corporations out there are looking at their data and looking for ways to improve. Yeah. I mean, you look at the pet coach model and the pet coach model is built, seems entirely on the value of People want personalized care. Yeah. And we're going, and convenience. Tell us more and affordability. about the pet And we're coach. going to, um, well, I'm not sure how much I know about it, but yeah. it seems to be, it's what, I, what I, uh, I, I think I know is that it is a, uh, 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 it's an experiment really by Petco yeah. to deliver veterinary services, training, grooming. Yeah. Um, conveniently, affordably, they don't say affordably, they say so accessibly. So co-located <laughs> yeah, in one, in one, one thing. And there's a membership to it. Yeah. So people are able to, and I can't remember what the fees are, but I feel like when I looked at the fees, I was like, wow, that is really, you know, that would make this healthcare accessible to a lot of people, right? Yes. And they're encouraging pet insurance. It seems like they have figured out that there's a large yeah. group of the population that love their pets like family, yeah. want to take care of them, but private practice prices are out of their reach for yes. the most part, yep. and they are addressing that audience. And for anybody to be, I'm really, that's another thing that bugs me, is they're like, oh, those big bad corporates or whatever. I just think that is complete baloney. Yeah. I would invite the, anybody who feels that way to secret shop a couple of yeah you know, of the larger ones. And yeah. I would argue they're working just as hard and probably just as successfully as private practices yeah. to connect with clients yeah. and make, a, make a, a great value proposition. And I want to say um, on this note of pricing that the Veterinary Hospital Managers Association, a group that I am highly dedicated to, I'm a member of, I'm a certified veterinary practice member. I encourage all leaders out there to um, explore the resources of the VHMA, join the VHMA, and consider becoming a certified veterinary practice manager. They really um, stepped up their game, I thought, um, they've, which is saying something for that organization. Um, they stepped up their game um, by having this critical issues summit on pricing in Chicago, and they had a lot of really amazing minds in that room. And one of the things that we explored was, um, um, thinking about pricing from the standpoint that not all not all of our service and product prices have to include the costs of both our fixed expenses and our incremental expenses. That, if an, if an expense is an add-on to a core service, so let's assume that the, serv the core services that we offer are covering our fixed expenses yep. and <clears throat> are sufficient to have us break even, then we could add on these additional services that only covered incremental costs or, or, or variable costs plus our margin. 
Right. And if you think about that, that significantly lowers the price of that. I mean, yep. it would be interesting to explore, and I would encourage people out there to explore, it, how much more accessible wellness laboratories might be, for example. Right. Or more advanced diagnostic care for senior patients that may be marginal in some area of their life that, that, that is unaccessible to clients because an ultrasound is, you know, $700. Or yeah. a preventative dentistry is $700. Yeah. What if we rethink the pricing of that to not include the fixed costs? Now, again, this is mindful that our core services are already covering our, our right. nuts. Right. So, so you have to have a profitable practice That's in the first correct. instance to, that, to do to, this. To, to think about that. Yeah. But that really, I think, is a game changer, right? Yeah. That allows that healthcare to be accessible to more people. That allows us to live up to our mission. That allows us to do more of what we love to do, right? That's exactly what we do in, in my practice. And I've always done this in the practice oh. with, with dentistry particularly, because that's a passion of mine. Um, because all you know, it's the only disease every single animal will guaranteed get. Um, nothing more certain than you know death, taxes, and dental disease. And and but it's also something that should be completely preventable as well. So you know, and we are just complete fire service for you know the animal walks in at age seven or eight and it needs twelve teeth extracting and it's been like that for three or four years. That's a pretty profoundly bad impact on the animal. So I wanted to come at this from the point of view of making it more accessible to people to do the right thing earlier. So the interventional, the, you know, the grade one uh, scale and polishing, the prophylactic stuff. And so we, you know, we dropped the fee of that down to, um, we were like a $200 dental, that yeah. included x-rays. Uh, that, was, that was your IV fluids, that was everything was in there. We didn't include a blood test at that price. Um, and have continued that over here uh, now in the UK. Uh, and, and you, you know, you get pushback from professionals. They're like, I don't want to knock out my, you know, we shouldn't be knocking out pets for dentals every six to 12 months uh, because of the anesthesia risks. Um, and you get push, pushback. You don't get pushback from clients and things like that. Mm. Again, it's that institutionalized resistance to change or doing something differently right. that, that seems to, to hold us back. Um, so I, th I think it's interesting that the, that the uh, VHMA um, are, are considering that because we are alienating a, a lot of our potential customers, aren't we? Yeah, the um, white paper will be delivered at the annual conference in October in Baltimore, the VHMA annual conference, um, um, uh, for any of the listeners that are interested in reading more of the details of it. But, you know, I want to go back to that thing about you talked about, you know, these you know, you talk about this veterinarian that is resistant to yep. to to having an increased dental, you know, increased yeah. dental compliance because they're worried about anesthesia risk. And, you know, I'm not dismissive of that concern, right? I mean, that's a big deal, right? You know, what what's an acceptable rate of adverse events when yeah. you're having anesthesia? Yeah. When you say to yourself, well, mistakes will happen. But yeah. when it happens to that pet, that, you know, I mean, that's just yeah, devastating. For that one person, yeah, it's but, not acceptable. Yeah, and right. so I... I I really am empathetic with, um, you know, again, I go back to the, the, there's not, it's not a resistance to change. Yeah. It are, it's the risk that is involved, which is big, right? And I think that we have to recognize this a practice that I, I know of that recently decided to really um, limit the scope of surgery that it does. So it had um, a doctor that was doing pretty advanced soft tissue and orthopedic surgery at the practice, and those surgeries were coming with a high price tag. But yep. um, they recently, even though that, that, that veterinarian was making a lot of money for the practice, yeah. um, they ended those services because in the end, they were just too risky, right? Yeah. Especially when you go back to social media, when you talk about, you know, patient, you know, 
that one one adverse event by somebody who's social media savvy yeah. um, could just blow up the web. Right, right. And and they, they felt like the impact of that was too great to remember. That's right. What services and so did when you they think delist from their their so they, you know they're not doing they're not doing knee surgery anymore they're yeah. not doing any advanced like if it's a if if, if if it's a if it's a second opinion surgery for yeah. whatever reason the first go around went wrong yeah. they they feel like it's just better off at a referral practice um, and and I would argue that when you add it all up they're probably right it's mm. probably more efficient and better for the team for them to do the the more routine things. I hope I don't get pushed. I'm sure I'm going to get pushed back, but I'll tell you, I've, this is what I believe. You know, we in a general business model, if we're seeing whatever the phone says that we're supposed to do, right? Yeah. You know, they, you get this DKA patient in, right? Yeah. And it's it's been eight months since the practice had a DKA yeah. patient. So we're not trained. We're not yeah, right. So everybody's trying to, to replay the what the hell am I supposed to do? Where's the equipment <laughs> yeah. for that again? Never mind that we've cycled through two generations of employees since the last time we took a DKA. Right. So they don't even know what to charge for it. Yeah. So I would argue that it's it. You know, you talk about stopping and starting and stopping and starting. Unless you're an incredibly seasoned professional, having that diverse caseload, yeah. I think, is difficult to manage. And zeroing in on more of a niche may be the way to go. Again, not a plug and play, but maybe the way you should think about your organizing your business. So I think that's a really interesting point. It clearly has validity. So I have two questions on that. Number one, where does the practice make up its revenue from if not doing those incidental cases? Because a lot of those times are quite profitable things to work up. Whereas the routine things generate Well, are more they margins. profitable or do they just generate a high invoice? That's what I would say. Well, if it's a surgery, that's that's usually pretty profitable. Uh, Is it? I mean, really? Because that, no, that's what if the surgery's in the hospital for three days? Really? It's that profitable at four thousand dollars, and all of the risk involved, and all the technician time, and um, all of the client follow through, and yeah, I suppose if you're billing for it right, if, yeah, if you're billing if for you're it, billing but who for does? It right. No, that's true. But that's one thing. The other thing then is, you know, the veterinarians, which is, we were bringing in highly, highly experienced, uh, smart, not highly experienced, but highly smart people that want, you know, they're sold the James Herriot vision on the way into university. But they're coming out and they're doing dentals and lumpectomies and they're bored. Like that's not, when they're being paid not a great amount compared to their peer group. How do we en engage and maintain those people if we, because I, like, I think a lot of people refer now on the basis of fear. Um, I, I totally agree with that. You see that happening. Um, but if, there, if you refer everything, where's the fun? Where's the joy? Where, where are you going to find your mastery in something yeah. that provides you with fulfillment? You know, we came back to that earlier, you know, focusing on the narrow and niching down on something. So you get really good at it. It gives you a lot of joy, a sense of purpose. But if, if that thing is spay and neuter and vaccinations, ultimately... Like, unless you really love people and, and, and being in that exam room with vaccines, and that's, that's right. one of the things I love, that's going to get thin and, and, and be a, become a very boring thing for, for people who are highly active minds. How do we retain people? Like, I, th I think you're 100% on something there. How do we retain people and talent? You might not have an answer. This is kind of a huge question. Bash, fix veterinary medicine. Well, you know, you see this trend where, you know, there are group, there's consolidation happening now, yeah. right? So you've got these, you know, 
high-end or, or, or advanced practices that are buying up lower producing practices yeah. and they're shifting the focus of their general you know wellness well care to those small practices right. and funneling and up the more advanced care to the right. central hub right. which I think would is a you know a decent model yeah it makes a lot of sense for right. patient care yeah side of things I wonder how we we make it work for the the you know for the for the team care side of things as well yeah um, you know do vets want to be general practitioners um, I mean general practitioners in medicine certainly seem to do okay at that um, but do, do do vets want to do do that well I don't I don't I don't uh, you're right I don't have an answer but I can tell you that there are a lot of things that we haven't explored within yeah. the general practice business model that are what I think provide veterinarians you know enough mental stimulation so you know um, how great are we at following up on chronic care patients how great are we at geriatric preventative care and can we get better yeah. I mean there's a lot of gold in Imdar Hills Hell and yeah. how well have we explored that and I would find that exploration I think for anybody I think that they would find that engaging I don't think that's the you know the center of all of this and the gist I'm getting from you there is that you need to find people who are great with relationships, and that means being able to tell stories. That you know, that means being able to engage with with clients and form meaningful relationships with clients. Um, it leads to a question, which I don't don't expect an answer from you here. Is but are are we recruiting? You know, is it time for us to rethink and resell what veterinary medicine is these days uh, to the people who are coming in? Because are do they want to to get? quarter of a million dollars worth of debt to not be able to come out and not everybody's going to be this in fact most people are not going to be the specialist surgeon or the ER doctor or you know they're they're going to work in general practice and increasingly have to work in systems like this so it sounds a lot like we have to go back to finding people who are good at engaging with people and less about clear you know pure science and and pure you know it comes down to EQ and IQ doesn't it yeah, maybe so. I, you know, uh, for those ambitious minds out there, right? There's always a future. There's always a there's future. A for, yeah, like, yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. thing about the degree, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there, there'll always be a, a a way forward for those kind of people. I mean. Uh, uh, so what's changed? So maybe when these people used to emerge from veterinary school, there was a structured, it was a very structured, understood context in which they, would, they were expected to work and, 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 and live. And that's changing very rapidly. Yeah. I don't necessarily it means, think it means that those opportunities go away. It just changes. And I really do think that... Um, that people are missing out on a great opportunity if you don't see this change yeah. as just that, yeah. right? Not a bad thing. It's not scary. No, as a wonderful opportunity for, you know, it's a whole new playing field. So go out there and play ball, kids. I love that. So I'm conscious of both of our time here. We've both got lots of interesting things to do today. So I'm going to scoot into our fast, rapid fire questions oh. at the end and maybe oh we'll just do boy. two or three of those and oh then I know right. you've got to get off. So, um, and you can answer them. They don't have to be short answers, although they probably need to be with both of our schedules. But the first question is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? Um, it has to, it would be along the lines of, uh, it would be along the lines of take time to think 
right? Give oneself repose on all levels. I would say is that's been the most successful thing for me is to pull away, f- pull myself off of that high flame, fast boil st- stove burner and put myself on the slower cook one. Is it was a that was the life changer for me. Responds, don't react. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Uh, and what was the worst piece of advice you've ever given or received? I, I mean, my whole life is filled with giving bad advice. Um, so, I mean, the, I, I just, I'm one of those poor people that all I do is learn from mistakes. I don't know. I would have to think about that. What's the I don't know. It was, I, I've given, I've made so many mistakes that maybe that would be one of the things that I would just encourage people to do. I'll flip the question around is that the way that you're going to have an autonomous team, the way that you're going to succeed is that you are going to give your team members an opportunity to fail in a safe environment. You're going to give them a job, they're probably going to screw it up, and instead of admonishing them for it, you're going to be supportive of them through that journey, through the shame of that, and that you are going to exact a kind of um, fidelity from them that is will be unmatched. So, and I just have to say, you told me to be short, but you know, uh, reaching out and making strong, you said about client contact, right? So when we make strong recommendations, when we reach out for contact, invariably you're going to get some client that's going to snap at you and slap back. And it's important that we're cognizant as leaders that our team members in the process of making strong recommendations or reaching and making a connection to clients, they're going to screw it up. They're going to get a bad review. They're going to get told off. They're going to get, you know, whatever. I'm never, they're going to leave the practice. And it's important for us to be supportive of that team member through that process because in that is how they learn to get better at communicating. If you were to recommend a book or what's what's the book that's made the biggest impact on your life? Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to... Um, you could do a top three if you want. Uh, well, I, I, I have to say, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to blank on the name of it. Um, oh, I, it's, a, it's a book called, I think it's called Tattoos on the Heart or Tattoos of the Heart. And it's written by a Jesuit priest who worked out in California in one of the biggest um, uh, uh, housing developments, uh, low-income housing developments. And he tried to stop... Uh, these gang people from psych spiraling out of control and it was one it has to be one of the most amusing heartwarming heart-wrenching books i've ever read and inspirational for me in so many levels i am kind of a diehard catholic and the book is these is are is sort of beautiful homily after homily of sort of real life um examples and it's inspirational for me and i love it i just love it i'm I, i i would say that um, I like self-help books. I read them a lot, and, but I don't know if I would have a particular favorite one. Yeah. Al- I, almost any of them I'll pick up and I read, and I really enjoy um, challenging my thought pattern. So I wish that I had been turned on sooner in my life to um, um, how I, I've allowed negative thinking to cloud my judgment and destroy my happiness. What's the most important thing that you've learned, and how's the, how have you been able to apply that then? In in terms of in yeah, terms yourself, of that self help, yeah, yeah. So I will say that um, what I recognize, and I think that what many of us do, is that we give ourselves a daily Chinese water torture of negative thoughts that are false. 
right? There's just, you know, and I think I told you the other day when we were talking that I went out with someone who said something to the effect of, you have no idea, but I'm the clumsiest person in the world. And you know, like those kind of comments, we, they fly out of our mouths and you, they're, they sound innocuous enough, but they are sort of a Chinese water torture, this inner voice of constantly being negative and it affects your outlook. It affects everything you do. And I think to turn to to change that, to change those thought processes and give yourself a, a, a Chinese water torture of positivism in your life really do you, changes do your... Do you use affirmations? Do you, t- I do you use certainly affirmations do. I use yourself? it all, man. I'll go onto YouTube, I'll take a jog and I'll plug into whatever affirmation tape that's at hand. I like sometimes where they walk me through a mental story of relaxation. Yeah. I also do straightforward meditations. You saw that thing I posted on Facebook when I was at the House of Lords about how funny it was when I, you know, so they can go to my uh, Facebook, my a personal Facebook page, look up Bash Hallow and check out the um, the affirmations gone awry on my journey to the House of Lords that cracked me up. But yeah, so I do that kind of stuff a lot. It's very helpful. I love it. What's the most important thing that you're grappling with right now? Well, um, I, I would say that I'm actually through that Waterloo. The most difficult, the most thing, the thing that I'm, I was having the most trouble grappling with happened about um, August or October, where that negative thinking really reached ahead. And I got to the point where I couldn't even stand to be in my own skin. I just, I really thought that I wasn't as bad as like suicidal, but I was really depressed. And, um, and I went into therapy and I um, also deeply immersed myself into physical fitness and improving my, really working every day on my mind and my, and my physical fitness. And I have to tell you that for the first time in my life, I find myself lying down in bed and saying to myself, not what's going to be wrong or worrying about something, but lying in my bed and thinking to myself, God, this bed feels delicious, or <laughs> God, this bed is relaxing, or it feels so good to relax, or I love my life. And so I've actually been through the worst of the gauntlet um, you know, in the past. I'm sure there's, um, as life, you know, I'm sure life has other challenges ahead of me, but um, that was the one that I passed through most recently, uh, a baptism by fire. And thank God, um, I emerged more resilient and um, better on the other side. I'm ready for the next challenge, whatever that may be. Uh, the tools that you did, did you have a routine or a process that you would, you know, use each day? I'm relating very it much was, to what it, you're To me, here. it had to be connected with exercise yeah. because it was the only way that I could focus. I have a very difficult time focusing. So um, going through stretching exercises and um, workout exercises where I would just zone into whatever it was, a stationary bike, jogging, um, light repetitive over you know high volume um sets uh, on weight with weights at the gym and all the time listening to those affirmations or whatever tape it was that was very very helpful and therapy man i mean it's too bad that therapy is stigmatized the way that it is and honestly i think that all it takes is about five weeks before you really see some improvement and then god knows what happens after that i mean i'm still in it but i will tell you that just within a short amount of time so i would encourage anyone out there to take advantage of whatever their insurance covers with that because um you should explore it having somebody else taking a look on you from the exterior and giving their feedback being a sounding board for your thoughts and your perceptions i mean you can't go wrong no no completely second that bush completely second it um what's the most controversial thing about you that people don't know but really matters uh well i'm i don't know if um, people know about it or not but i'm gay um i don't think that um 
gay is that accepted in the vet world. Um, I don't think it's that accepted in the world, period. I think that it's accepted in major urban areas, but it's for the most part still stigmatized and gay people are still for the most part marginalized everywhere. And um, that leaves you know life life hands us whatever life hands us right and then and depending upon your sensitivity to that you have that baggage with you and it's not just gay people or people of color or people of a different race we all have our right we all have our share of things that have happened to us right and we uh, process that but i will tell you the one cool thing that comes of many cool things uh, come from uh, uh, being gay but one of them is when you're marginalized you have more freedom to breathe and and self-actualize. Yep. And um, in the gay community, the diversity of people that I meet and the, diver- and the diversity of thinking, I mean, it's truly a wonderful club to be in, um, provided you're not killed or stoned. But you know, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful group to be in. So I guess that that would be the most controversial thing that people don't know. But, um, and I would be lying to tell you if I, if I didn't su- suffer shame issues because of it or that I was totally cool with it or I'm really comfortable talking about it with my family. I'm, I'm still not comfortable yeah, talking with yeah. my family. My family's not comfortable talking about it. Well, we all know about it we still talk about it but we're not it's not comfortable from a strong catholic background as yeah. well that would have been a really tough thing in arabic too. i mean that's that not absolutely. a big deal no not real popular in that world yeah yeah right no absolutely you know so that's probably the, that's probably it that's a lot of bravery there's a whole other podcast in that there's a whole other podcast to talk about that okay so what's the coolest thing you have bought in the last six months you know what i will tell you that i bu- that i started buying now that i i i i am a I, all my life, all I've ever really done is spend my money. If I'm ever going to spend any money, it's for hedonistic things like, like hotels. I was going to put throw some other H word in. There. I hotels. You were going to go with that. <laughs> hotels Deep and restaurants. Before you speak, <laughs> hotels and restaurants were the things that I blow the most money on. And now what I've turned on to is I'm buying clothes. So I'm buying. So I, I indulge myself in clothes in a way that I haven't before. And and shopping in New York, when you go to the right stores, they really see me coming. You know. So there's this one Hugo Boss store down in the Meatpacking District, and boy, they see me coming and they liquor you up. You know, while you're in the store, they're going to give you like a couple of drinks and before you know it they're like you know they're throwing oh you need to take this out sure sure and you're racking that up on the old credit card so that's probably the most fun that i've had with purchasing wish i could afford it (laughs) absolutely um if you could give yourself one bit of advice back when you, you know back when you first went to new york city um what would that piece of advice be so you gotta you travel back in time pop out right next to yourself as you're walking down the street well, you know what I've made a mistake of, and maybe many of us do this, is that so many, many, many people loved me for who I was, tried to help me, um, tried to be accepting of me. And because I didn't believe it could be possible, because I didn't believe it to be true, um, all of their affection, all of their concern fell on unfertile soil and it never seeded and my life could have been so much easier if i would have been open to the love that people was was trying to give to me okay last one then bash because uh, i know you've you've you've, you've got to head off you've had a big day so um you're you're you know you've been very prominent in the social media world so if you could send one tweet or instagram post or, or photo of you to the entire world what would it say oh boy um you know, I I don't I I have to say that 
I, I don't, a lot of times when you go online, it's a, it feels like it's an envy contest. It's a, it's a one-upman comp. Uh, uh, one-upmanship thing and I hate to incite envy. I don't want my life to be a source of envy for anybody or jealousy or anything like that so whatever would be it would be um, something that would bring joy and happiness to them so like you saw that honey thing so that's kind of a way for me to kind of make people envious of me without um, you know making light of it so in the video you know I I'm eating my first comb of honey and it's delicious and I'm really gloating that I get to eat this in front of people. But it makes people laugh and, and it's a wonderful way um, for me to be with people and share and also be a brat. And I guess so, so it would be along those lines, I guess. I have to say, of like, you, I, I absolutely, there's not a bash post that I haven't just laughed my ass off at and it's, it's brought great joy to my life. Um, and anybody you know, there, anybody out there that you know, if uh, when I get a friend request, if I look at you and you like dogs, or I see that you go to vet, whatever, I will definitely accept your friend. friends. You know, if you're from some, if you've only got one other friend and you're from some weird Asian country, it's unlikely that I will friend you. But everybody else who gets friended, uh, and a great friend you'd you'd be as well. I'm quite sure, Bash. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Bash. If people want to learn more, read more, find out more about you, where's, where's a good place for them to go? Where can they find you? Where can they follow you? So um, if you're interested professionally in me, you can go to www.bashhallow.com, and that's H-A-L-O-W.com. And um, yeah, find me on Facebook. Um, Hallow Consulting on Facebook is another thing that they can look me up on. Um, Bash, you're you're you know you're one of the most. I I love that when I read everything you write. I like the way you write. You're a hilarious person, like just a wonderful character, and adds so much color to the you know the the tapestry that we have in veterinary medicine. So my extreme gratitude for your time and the interview. It's my joy to call you a friend, and so thank you for being on the show. And you just keep rocking and lighting up the world around you. Brother. Thank you so much. folks now just before you jump off a couple of things firstly my thanks to bash hallow wasn't he a great guest uh, don't forget to show him some love on social media and thank him for coming on and sharing his story uh, secondly speaking of love if you enjoy this podcast if you get just a morsel of goodness from it I would be super grateful if you would shout it out on iTunes or just shout it out on social media as well. Tell the world what you think of it. Your feedback, your comments help us to reach more guests, reach more listeners, and it all just feeds the whole circus. So until next time, be safe, be well, be happy. Dr. Dave out.